Hi guys, welcome back to the show. I am so excited that you're here today because today we're talking about one of my favorite topics, one of the things that I think is the most important to talk about when it comes to women's health, and that is blood sugar balance. It's really important for everybody's health, but it's especially important for women because so much of our hormonal experience is dependent on blood sugar balance. And I think that because it can play out in all of these different ways, it's related to hormonal issues like PCOS and fertility and endometriosis and menopause. And it's also related to the way that we feel throughout the day, our hunger, our cravings, our energy, our sleep. It's something that just touches so many different parts of our lives. And I always joke with people that you learn how to balance your blood sugar, you will solve 99% of your problems. And it's a little hyperbolic, but there's a little bit of truth to it too. When you figure out how to manage your blood sugar, you start feeling so much better. Your energy is better. Your mood is more stable. And then if you are struggling with a more chronic health issue with regards to hormones or some other major health issues, which we're going to get into in this episode, a lot of those things can really be supported by healthy blood sugar balance and it's protective of your long-term health as well. So I'm really excited to get into this. Welcome to the About Health and Hormones podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Allen, a recovered sugar addict turned certified nutrition coach on a mission to help women learn how to balance their hormones and optimize their fertility. On this podcast, we have conversations with experts about all things health, hormones, wellness, nutrition, and more to give you the information, tips, and tricks you need to take control of your health and feel amazing in your body. I am so happy that you're here and I can't wait to dive in. In this episode, we're going to cover how your blood sugar gets unbalanced in the first place and what the blood sugar roller coaster is, how unbalanced blood sugar can cause insulin resistance, how insulin resistance is at the root of many hormonal imbalances, including painful and irregular periods, PCOS, fertility problems, weight struggles, fatigue, mood swings, and more, how unbalanced blood sugar can result in poor sleep, low energy, mental health struggles, and more complicated long-term health issues, and how you can get off of this roller coaster and balance your blood sugar in order to balance your hormones and feel good. We're going to start with what I call blood sugar 101. I'm going to teach you just the basics of how sugar works in your body and what's really happening when we consume sugar. So basically, sugar is found in any food that contains either added sugar or carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are just chains of sugar molecules. And when we eat something with sugar or carbs, we break that sugar down. We separate the different molecules. So if it's been in a long chain of carbohydrates, we break it down and that goes from our digestive system into our bloodstream. Once sugar enters the blood, we have a hormone called insulin And it's insulin's job to basically check the blood sugar levels and say, let's make sure that the blood sugar levels stay steady. We don't want them to be too high or too low. Ideally, you want it to be somewhere between 70 to 120 milligrams per deciliter. Um, And again, I'm just giving those numbers for frame of reference. It's not like if your blood sugar goes up a little bit, like your blood sugar is not supposed to be at zero, okay? It's supposed to have this baseline amount of sugar in the blood, 
just in case you need a quick burst of energy, let's say in the case of an emergency, if a bear is coming and attacking you, your body needs sugar in the blood to send immediately to the muscle cells so that you would be able to run away. So we never want to be down at zero. That would be really dangerous and you would probably be dead, but it's supposed to be in this nice, happy medium range between 70 and 120. But a lot of times the way that we eat, especially on the standard American diet, causes our blood sugar levels to be way out of that range. So when a lot of sugar comes in, especially very quickly, if we're eating foods with a lot of added sugar or refined carbohydrates, which are much easier to break down, the sugars go from the digestive system much more quickly into our bloodstream in those cases, and the blood sugar levels rise really quickly. And the body basically responds by sending in a lot of insulin and insulin will clear out that sugar, which will then bring your blood sugar levels way down low. So I want you to picture a roller coaster that starts off. If you've ever been on one of those really good wooden roller coasters, it starts off going slowly, but then you go really up, 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 up. And then there's like that pause at the top. You have the crash. That's what happens a lot of times when we're eating a lot of added sugar or refined carbohydrates. And there are different symptoms associated with high or low blood sugar. Typically when people have high blood sugar levels, they feel actually really tired and sluggish. It's kind of like that food coma feeling. I know we tend to think of a little kid on a sugar high bouncing off the walls and running around, but most people don't really feel like that. They actually feel the opposite. They feel very lethargic when their blood sugar levels are high. And when they have low blood sugar, you tend to feel jittery, hungry, anxious, maybe even hangry, which some of us really know that feeling. And a lot of people actually report having much higher cravings for sugar and carbohydrates in both of these states. And that usually keeps you back on that roller coaster because once you have those cravings come in, you know, let's say you did your big rise up, you crash down. Once you reintroduce more sugar and carbs, you're going to go back up and then crash again afterwards. So for many of us, we are riding this roller coaster of blood sugar all day, every day, some of us for months and years and even decades. And I know that was absolutely the case for me because I had the biggest sweet tooth. I started my day with these really delicious chocolatey, muffins. And then I would have croissants when I was in university. And for lunch, I would usually have some kind of pasta, French fries, something like that, maybe with a little bit of protein. I would have more pasta and rice and all these different kinds of things for dinner. Not to say that these things can't have a place in the diet, but when you're eating tons of carbs at really high amounts all throughout the day without sugar, um, sorry, excuse me, without protein and fiber and fat to balance them out, we get stuck on this blood sugar roller coaster. And we have research showing that when people are on this type of blood sugar roller coaster, it has many negative effects on their life. So there was a study from 2012 that saw that individuals who were diabetic and had worse glycemic control, so worse blood sugar balance, meaning their highs were higher and their lows were lower, they also tended to have higher rates of depression, anxiety, and other factors that qualified for worse quality of life. We don't feel good when we are oscillating like this. It's very overwhelming. It's very confusing to our bodies to be like, we have a ton of energy. We have no energy. And for many, many people, their energy levels and their mood tends to follow their blood sugar curve. So we don't feel good when this is happening on a daily basis. But as time goes on and when this happens, not just one day, one time when you had a lot of dessert, but it's happening day after day. As I said, this was the case for me for many years. 
when this happens over time, we start to develop even more problems. So this can lead to insulin resistance. And I want to explain to you why this leads to insulin resistance. So when sugar enters the blood, insulin basically has three choices of what it can do with this sugar. Number one, it can take the sugar to the muscle cells and it can store it there. The muscles can use it up as energy, but the muscles have a fixed amount of how much sugar they could store at a time. It could be somewhere between like 800 to 2000 calories of glucose, which is a huge, huge range. It really depends on the person and their body type and their muscle composition, but they have a max limit. So it's as if you go to a storage center and you have three choices of where you can put your junk from your garage. Okay. And there's like a small, medium, and large. The muscle cells, I would say are a medium storage center. Okay. It's like renting a medium unit. You can put a medium amount of sugar in there. Once it's filled up, you've got to rent another storage unit. And the second storage unit in our body is the liver. The liver is a small storage unit. It can only hold somewhere between 200 to 500 calories of glucose, and it's a short-term storage center. So you're only able to put your junk in there for like two to three days, let's say for the sake of example, before it's going to get moved out to a different storage container. Okay. These are the rules of storage center. This is how it works in the body. And once the liver is filled up and the muscles are filled up and your time in the liver has maxed out, your body is going to take those sugar molecules that are stored in the liver and convert them into fat cells. And that we actually have a large storage center, not only a large storage center, an infinite storage center. The body can continue to make fat cells for as long as we need. And that is a mechanism that has helped us survive for thousands of years. So I want to really point out, this is not our body trying to fight against us. This is what our body did in case there was a famine or a really bad harvest. This was a way for our body to say, hey, we're never going to get to this place where we have such little energy that we can't survive. We're going to take extra sugar and store it as fat. As if, you know, you don't need all of the money from your salary to pay this month's bills. You put a little bit in the bank and save it for later in case you have a worse month later on. It really is a survival mechanism that is done in order to protect our body. Now, the thing is, for many of us today, this survival mechanism and this storage mechanism is not necessary because we don't get to a place where we really need to tap into those fat cells for backup energy. And in many cases, we're taking in so much more energy than our body truly needs to run efficiently. And that's where we run into trouble with insulin resistance. This is why for many people, unbalanced blood sugar is also associated with weight gain and weight struggles. I'm not focusing so much on that just because I actually think what happens with our hormones and overall health is more interesting and more relevant. Um, and there are many people who have insulin resistance and struggle with this who are at a quote unquote healthy weight too. So I want to talk about what happens when this is going on in your body over and over again. Insulin resistance is basically where your muscle cells say, why is insulin here all the time? Every single day, insulin is knocking on my door, not even just every day, but multiple times throughout the day. And it's like, hi, I have some sugar here to deliver to you. And the guard of the muscle cell is like, you were here an hour ago. We don't have any more room in this storage facility. Go away. You're annoying us. And we have other things we need to do, right? The muscle cells have jobs. They're busy. So they say, you know what? This insulin is really annoying us. Let's make it a little bit harder for insulin to come into the body. Sorry, to come into the muscle cells. So they change their locks. They install a deadbolt. They make it just a little bit harder for insulin to get in. 
And insulin is a very determined hormone. So insulin says, you know what? I'm going to call in the troops. Let the pancreas produce even more insulin. And we're going to bang down this door to the muscle cell storage center. And this cycle continues to happen. The muscle cells get very aggravated. Again, not that your cells actually have feelings, but for the sake of example, they get annoyed. They make it even harder for insulin to come in. And all of a sudden now you are producing more insulin to deal with the same type of food than you were a few months ago. So for example, and I'm just throwing out numbers, for example, let's say you needed 20 units of insulin to store the sugar from an Oreo three months ago. Now you might be producing 25 units of insulin. And as this goes on and on and on, and insulin resistance gets worse, you start needing to produce more and more insulin in order to deal with small amounts of sugar. And what happens here is that A, your muscle cells are like, get out of here. We don't want to be taking in any more sugar. And so they're not going to be converting it into energy anymore. All of that sugar is going to be sent to the liver. Okay. And when all that sugar is sent to the liver, it's very likely going to be converted into fat. And that affects your liver in a way that we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. Another thing that happens with insulin resistance is that it exists on a spectrum. You can be more or less insulin resistant. I think sometimes we have this very binary view of things in health. Either you are diabetic or you're not. Um, And there are things that are binary like this. Either you have strep throat or not, right? You could take a test that says you're positive for, for strep, the bacteria is in your body, or it's not. But this is not the case with insulin resistance. It really exists on a spectrum. So you could be slightly insulin resistant where your body's working a little bit harder than normal to produce insulin, or you could be pre-diabetic, you could be diabetic. And that is really where Not only is your insulin not able to regulate your blood sugar levels at all, but some of the cells in your pancreas have burnt out and they're having trouble even producing adequate insulin. So there are many different tests that can be used to measure where you're at in terms of your insulin health, your blood sugar health. Um, We'll talk about some of those also later on in this episode, but I want to point out this is not something that's only relevant to people who have diabetes. You can be at risk and you can have insulin resistance even if you're not classified as diabetic. Now, I want to explain to you why is insulin resistance relevant when we're talking about our hormone health, about our cycles, our fertility, our experience during menopause, all of those things. When you have high levels of blood sugar and your insulin can't deliver them to the muscle cells, it gets sent to the liver to be converted into fat cells. And the problem with this is that this is not the liver's main job. The liver's main job is to detoxify. And when I say detoxify, I mean, not like a juice cleanse detox. I think we all have this weird association with the word detox, but real true detoxification is the liver looking at what's in your blood. It's filtering it and it's saying, okay, these things are good. Let's keep them in the blood. These things are waste and they need to be excreted from the body. So the way that our liver does that is that it breaks things down into what we call metabolites and we send it out through our urine, our poop, or our sweat. And that's the liver's main job. It's supposed to filter things out. But when it has to convert sugar into fat all the time, like many hours of the day, every single day for months and years and decades, it can't focus on its job of of detoxification. And this is where we really start to see trouble build up. So think about it as if you have a job at work, you have your tasks to do every single day. Maybe if you're a teacher, for example, you have to lesson plan and teach your students. 
but I know this happens. I used to be a teacher. Sometimes parents keep emailing you, right? And maybe the principal says you can't do lesson planning or teach your class until you've answered all the parents' emails and the parents keep emailing and your inbox keeps piling up and piling up and you never end up getting to teach your class or do your lesson plans. This is kind of what happens to the liver. It never gets to do its real job because it's so burdened with all of this excess sugar. And then we start to see some of the waste products that should be excreted build up in the body. So that could look like estrogen building up, testosterone, cortisol, insulin. There are many other um, types of compounds in the body that can get built up, but I want to specifically focus on the hormones. So let's talk about what happens when certain hormones build up. We'll talk about estrogen and testosterone specifically. Estrogen is a growth hormone and its job is to thicken up the uterine lining. It's to help develop breast tissue. And when we have higher amounts of estrogen during certain parts of our cycle, that helps thicken the uterine lining so that in case you end up getting pregnant, you have this really nourishing environment for a fertilized egg. Now, if you have too much estrogen, it almost does too good of a job. It thickens your uterine lining even more than normal. Um, It can cause sore breasts because your breast tissue is just like overwhelmed with the growth. And especially when we're talking about that buildup of the uterine lining, this can lead to either really heavy periods for some people because it's just a thicker lining. It can also lead to painful periods. Sometimes the body has to contract more than it should in order to get rid of the entire uterine lining. And that means that it's going to cause stronger cramps. So if you have cramps, sore breasts, um, spotting, sometimes there's breakthrough bleeding because progesterone is not able to hold the uterine lining together because estrogen is overpowering it. That can all be related to estrogen dominance or too much estrogen in the bloodstream. Short cycles, cycles anywhere from 26 days and lower. So if you have like a 21, 23, 25-day cycle, anything like that, you're getting your period so often, sometimes that is because you have too much estrogen that's promoting this uterine lining growth, and it can't even hold itself together until 28 to 32 days. So that is something that can happen when you have estrogen buildup in the body. This can affect your fertility. It also affects mood swings, um, energy, fatigue, all sorts of like mental, emotional things related to it. Testosterone is another one that tends to get built up. And there are a bunch of reasons for this. One is again, your liver is not able to clear out testosterone from the body. And when it builds up, it can affect hair growth. So it can cause hair growth on your face, on the chin, on the upper lip area, kind of in a male pattern. Um, It can cause hair loss on your head, which is a really, really unpleasant symptom to have. It can be associated with acne. It is one of the criteria for PCOS, getting diagnosed with PCOS, um, to have high levels of androgens or male-type hormones like testosterone. It's related to having high cholesterol. So there's a lot of really not fun things that happen when these hormones start to build up in the body. There are many other ways that insulin resistance can play out in the body. It's been shown to be a predictor of many other chronic health issues like hypertension, obesity, acute coronary syndrome, and it's highly present in women with PCOS. It is not one of the diagnostic criteria. And the numbers that I've seen range from saying women with PCOS, it's about somewhere between 50 and 90%, depending on which study and which organization is reporting the numbers. But many, many women who have PCOS also tend to have insulin resistance. And it's not yet clear, is it 
genetic? Is it the PCOS causing it? Is it the diet causing it? And then that causes the PCOS. We don't have enough research to determine the cause, but we do know that there is an association. And I want to talk more about how it's affecting all of us, even people without any of those diagnoses, because I know some of you might be thinking, well, I don't have any of those diagnoses. So this isn't really relevant for me. But we know from research that you can absolutely have unbalanced blood sugar without seeing these symptoms play out, especially if you are in your younger years, if you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, having unbalanced blood sugar can add up. And again, these decades of unbalanced blood sugar are often predictors of other more complicated health issues down the line. So I want to share one of my favorite studies with you. It's the Stanford Cornflake study. And this was a study done in 2018 where researchers basically looked at healthy individuals. These were people who took tons of standard tests for blood sugar and insulin health. They took the A1C, they took the fasting glucose test, the oral glucose tolerance test. They had many, many other blood markers measured and they were determined to be perfectly healthy. And the researchers gave these participants a CGM to wear, a continuous glucose monitor, which monitors your blood sugar throughout the entire day. And they were supposed to wear it for two to four weeks and eat different meals and see what their blood sugar looked like when they eat those meals. So the researchers gave them what I would consider like three typical meals. These were not ice cream sundaes or freak shakes or crazy desserts that were obviously loaded in sugar. The meals were a peanut butter sandwich, a protein bar, and cornflakes and milk. And they found, and this was so crazy, there were tons of articles that came out when this study was done, but they found that a standard, I'm quoting from the study here, a standardized meal of cornflakes and milk caused glucose elevation in the pre-diabetic range, which is over 140 milligrams per deciliter in 80% of individuals in our study. Over 80% of people had pre-diabetic blood sugar levels from having a bowl of cornflakes and milk which is a pretty typical breakfast for people and not even a breakfast that I would say most people would consider super unhealthy. Um, I know I grew up eating cereal pretty much every day for breakfast, but I didn't have cornflakes. I had Reese's puffs and cocoa pebbles and things like that, which had even more added sugar. But what was so interesting from this study was the proof that people who are healthy, really healthy individuals, they were spiking their blood sugar from pretty regular standard meals without even realizing it, without showing symptoms. There was another study done in 2018 that came from the University of North Carolina that showed that only 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. This means that the other 88% are not metabolically healthy. And that definitely has a broad definition. What does metabolic health really mean? It basically means that we're able to take in the energy we eat and use it properly and store it properly. But I think this number is really, really telling because I tell people, listen, statistically, we all need to be paying attention to our blood sugar balance. Unless you're really, really careful with the way that you eat or you're genetically just super, super lucky because there are some people who are genetically just really lucky right? We all know that one grandma who said, oh, my life advice to live to 120 is to smoke cigarettes and drink Coca-Cola. Like those people are definitely out there. They are definitely the minority. We see that generally these patterns of unbalanced blood sugar do not bode well for our health. And there are many side effects that come from unbalanced blood sugar. So again, this is without being diagnosed with any sort of disorder, these are common side effects that happen to people when they have unbalanced blood sugar. So the first one is constant hunger. 
you tend to feel hungrier when your blood sugar is imbalanced. And part of this is because there's a domino effect with our hormones. If one thing is out of whack, it affects many other hormones in our body. So when insulin is high, it ends up affecting our other hunger and satiety hormones. One of those satiety hormones is something called leptin. And leptin gets suppressed when insulin is high. So it's very hard to feel satisfied. And you have a hunger hormone called ghrelin, which is revved up. There's no leptin to keep it in check. And that just makes you feel hungry all the time. And I know when I learned this, I was like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense because I used to feel like I needed eight snacks a day. I could eat three plates of food at a meal. Like I had huge, huge portions and I was never overweight, but I just felt like I was hungry all the time. I felt like I could not eat enough to keep up with my appetite. And it was kind of a running joke with people. Oh, where do you put all the food? But it makes sense now. I wasn't hormonally ever feeling satisfied. And I am able to eat smaller portions, not small. I would say like a normal, regular adult portion size of food now because my appetite and my hunger and satiety hormones are much more in check. Another really common side effect are cravings. So there's actually a really cool study that looked at how blood sugar affects your cravings. They had a group of people wearing CGMs, monitoring their blood sugar and showing them pictures of food on the screen. And the people had to rate how badly did they want to eat the food on the screen. So they were looking at, let's say, a picture of broccoli and had to rate it from one to 10 and then a hamburger and then cupcakes. And they saw that when people had more blood sugar crashes or really high levels, they tended to rate the sweeter and higher calorie foods higher on the scale of, I want to eat that right now. So a cupcake might look like a six when your blood sugar is stable, but it could be an eight when your blood sugar levels are low, which is just really interesting. And again, I think sometimes we associate cravings with willpower or with these other things that we tend to then blame ourselves when it doesn't go as we had hoped. And that's really not true a lot of the time. Many times these things are really associated with our blood sugar. Other things that are common side effects include fatigue. It is exhausting for your body to be managing your blood sugar when it is so up and down, and it actually causes these energy crashes. So fatigue is really common. Poor sleep, even though you might be feeling really tired, there are a lot of ways that this can contribute to poor sleep, especially if you eat late at night. If you take a lot of sugar in, let's say at 10 p.m., you have a late night snack and you spike up right before bed, you're gonna end up crashing while you're asleep and that can disrupt your sleep cycles. That can actually cause you to wake up feeling hungry in the middle of the night, which is not helpful for us. Um, And then there's a lot of work that the body has to do to digest overnight when it's not really supposed to be digesting. It's supposed to be working on detoxifying and tissue repair and cellular repair. So that's another really common side effect. Migraines. We don't know exactly why, but they have done studies that show people who have more unbalanced blood sugar tend to experience migraines. And when they balance it and have more stable numbers, um, their migraines tend to be less severe and less frequent. Hot flushes and night sweats, which are two really common symptoms of menopause. Although I've worked with women in their 20s who also experience this when they are struggling with their estrogen levels, when they have unbalanced blood sugar. And because estrogen is so involved in regulating our temperature, this can be another symptom of unbalanced blood sugar and your hormones being out of balance. And this can also get much better when you balance your blood sugar. There are several long-term complications that are also associated with unbalanced blood sugar, with insulin resistance, with diabetes. And these include things like Alzheimer's disease, heart disease, different cancers, 
gut issues, and we're not going to go into all of those in this episode, but it's worth knowing, again, even if you're like, well, I feel pretty good and I don't really feel like I need to be paying so much attention to this. I think a lot of those things that could be coming up in the future are important to think about now. And the way that you eat now in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s is preventative for what can happen to your health in the future. I know that when I started my journey, I was very focused on getting pregnant, which you know, if you listen to the first episode, I talk a lot about my journey, why I got into health and wellness. And it was really all about just getting pregnant because I was having difficulty getting pregnant, getting my PCOS under control. But as I got certified as a nutrition coach, as I learned more, and especially when I learned more about cognitive health in my certification program, there was actually a whole unit on how diet and nutrition affect things like dementia and Alzheimer's. And we have a family history of Alzheimer's. I was really, really fascinated by what I was learning. I was slightly scared. It's really scary to dive into that world. I think having seen someone who really suffered from Alzheimer's, my grandfather passed away. He had Alzheimer's for many years. It was very sick. And it's just a terrible, nasty, really nasty disease that takes over you Like your brain is literally not working. You don't recognize the people around you. You completely lose your sense of self. And knowing that I have a family history of it and learning how Alzheimer's is really almost a type of insulin resistance of the brain. There are actually people now who are pushing to get the name changed from Alzheimer's to type three diabetes so that people will recognize it as a metabolic issue. And unlike something such as PCOS or pre-diabetes or even diabetes that with diet and lifestyle changes can be reversed or health can really be improved. Once you're at the point where you've developed symptoms of Alzheimer's, even if you're able to slow it down, or even if, I don't know if there's research showing that these things can actually reverse symptoms, but it's, I don't want to say it's too late at that point because that sounds so final and depressing, but it's really late in the game to be paying attention then. And when I learned about this, this was something that made me realize, oh, I thought I was just in this whole game to get pregnant and have my kids and then I'm done with it. But you know what? I really want to be balancing my blood sugar for the long run because I want to enjoy all of my years. I want to feel good in my body for my entire life. And I don't want to spend five, 10 years not knowing who the people in my family are. I mean, that's really, it's such a scary thought. And obviously it's not as simple as you eat unhealthy foods or you don't balance your blood sugar and then you go on to develop this. Again, there are so many other things that come into play. There are other things we didn't even talk about that affect your blood sugar, like stress, poor sleep. Those can cause your blood sugar to be more unbalanced. Um, And genetics obviously play a role, but knowing my genetics, knowing my family history, knowing that I've clearly already exhibited symptoms of unbalanced blood sugar, having tested my blood sugar for many, many months, very meticulously, I see that my body's very sensitive to it. And sometimes thinking about those scarier, but later in life effects can also be really motivating of this is why I want to take care of myself today. I want to shift gears and talk about what you can actually be doing to balance your blood sugar, because we've spoken a lot about what unbalanced blood sugar is and how it affects you. But I want you to know that it is really, really doable to keep your blood sugar balanced. And what do I mean by balanced? I don't mean keeping it at a static straight line. That's not realistic. That's not what our blood sugar needs to look like. But instead of being on this crazy up and down roller coaster with really high highs and really low lows, 
what we're aiming for is a much gentler curve. So I know you're not looking at me, but imagine my finger drawing this really not steep slope, like the bunny hill slope at a ski resort. Okay. It's going up on a very slight incline, very little, very slow, and then it's gently sloping down. That is normal and natural and going to happen when we take in energy in the form of carbohydrates, which are good for us. Complex carbohydrates are really great for us. Eating things like sweet potato and quinoa and dairy products that have carbohydrates and starchy veggies, all of these things can absolutely be a great source of nutrition in your diet. We just want to be eating and consuming them in a way that keeps our blood sugar steady and stable. So let's get into how we do that. Number one is balancing the macronutrients on your plate. So what do I mean by this? When we eat carbs or sugar by themselves, it's much easier to break them down and send them into our bloodstream than if we were to eat them with a mix of different types of nutrients like protein or fat or fiber. Carbs are pretty easy and quick to digest. Protein, fat, and fiber take much longer to digest. So you actually slow the rate of sugar absorption when you balance your plate with those different nutrients. So I know a lot of people already do this, you know, their idea of a balanced meal is having a protein and a starch and a veggie. That's like the typical, um, that's the typical equation for a balanced meal that a lot of people tell me when they start working with me that they're like, a lot of people use that as the equation to build their dinner meals or people who tell me, oh, I already eat such a balanced diet. That's what they tell me they're eating. I think there's room for refinement. A lot of times when you're following that sort of equation, you're not really having enough fiber. You're not necessarily getting enough protein. Sometimes the healthy fat gets left out. So really make sure you're getting all of those nutrients. And another thing that can really help is eating your foods in the most blood sugar friendly order. So there's really cool research on this. If you were to first eat your veggies, and then your protein and fat, and then your carbohydrates, as opposed to the other way around, you can reduce your glucose spikes by as much as 30%. That's pretty significant. And what's cool about this is that it doesn't require you changing what you eat or avoiding certain foods. I always tell my clients, don't get too hung up on doing this in a way that will make you crazy. If you're eating a salad, for example, that has sweet potato or chickpeas in it, don't feel like you need to avoid them and only eat them last and make sure you get the chicken and the lettuce first. Don't let it make you crazy. But if you have a plated meal where you have your protein and your veggies and your carbs separate, try to have the veggies and protein and fat before you go for the carbohydrates. Or if you know that you're going out for ice cream later, make sure you have a balanced meal with protein and fat and veggies beforehand, and that will reduce that glucose spike that you'll get from the ice cream later on. Number two, what you can do to balance your blood sugar is exercise and specifically build muscle. We actually went into detail on this in episode number three with Naomi Eastman. She's a personal trainer and does fitness classes for women all around the world. And she talked a lot about how when you build muscle, you create new places to store your sugar. So remember, we only have three options of where we can store sugar. It's either going to muscle cells, liver cells, or it's being converted from the liver into fat, and then we store it in a fat cell. 
when you build more muscle, not only are you creating new pockets in which you could store sugar and prevent them from going to the liver, but then even when you're not exercising, when you have a higher muscle composition, your body is actually burning up more energy even when you're resting, when you're sleeping, when you're sitting. And I know so many of us are sedentary today in our jobs. Listen, I do a lot of work at the computer. That's why it's so, so important to be building muscle. And it's going to be really, really tough to actually see results and balance your blood sugar if you don't have muscles using up some of that sugar and dipping into some of those fat stores and burning off the sugar molecules that have been converted into fat. So exercise, and especially muscle building exercises are really important. If you want more details, I'll link it in the show notes, but go back and listen to that episode because Naomi gives really, really specific examples of how long to be working out, what kind of movements to be doing. So you could go back to that episode and listen there for more details on how to actually implement that. Number three, and this one is kind of obvious, but people don't like to hear it, is reduce your added sugar and refined carbohydrate intake. And I know sometimes that could be really rough to hear because we live in this culture now where people are very sensitive to hearing that we need to reduce or limit or avoid anything. But the truth is having so much excess sugar and refined carbohydrates has been linked to so many different chronic health issues and we don't feel good when we do it. So I don't want to say avoid. I don't want to say have zero added sugar. That doesn't work for a lot of people. It's not realistic. And it's actually not necessary for most people to completely cut out sugar. But for many of us, reducing it will go a long way. And when it comes to reducing it, I would say start with your savory foods. Don't actually start with the sweet foods. Start with the savory because for so many of us, we're getting sneaky added sugars and things that we don't even consider dessert in the white bread of your sandwich or the cornflakes, which you wouldn't necessarily think of cornflakes as super sweet. It's not having Reese's puffs. It's cornflakes. It's not as, you know, sugary, so to speak, but it's really, it's really high in refined carbohydrates. If you're using ketchup and barbecue sauce and sweetener in your coffee, and maybe you're using those flavored creamers, whatever the things are where the sugars can be coming in, I would say outside of what you think of as a snack or dessert, start there, really get your regular meals, your breakfast, your lunch, your dinner to be solid, savory, nutrient-dense meals. And after you have that in place, first of all, you can go a long way with doing that. But after that, start looking at the snacks, the desserts, and see if there are ways where you can either reduce the added sugar intake somewhat. Maybe if you're hungry in the afternoon for a snack and you're just craving something sweet, Maybe you could go for a fruit instead of the Oreo. Maybe you look at dessert as something that you really enjoy, but you're willing to have it once or twice a week instead of every single night. And again, this is not being done in a way to punish ourselves. This is because it is very protective to our body when we keep our blood sugar balanced. And trust me, I get it. I was a total sugar addict. It's really, really hard to make these changes, especially if it's a big part of your life and your lifestyle. But we know the research is really, really clear on it. Having tons of added sugar and refined carbs is not good for our health. One other place that we actually tend to get the most in terms of added sugar are beverages, Sweden's beverages like sodas, iced coffees, certain energy drinks, things like that. I know for people who have their soda addiction, their Snapple addiction, it's a really, really hard change to make. So there are a few ways you could go about it. One is, let's say you drink a can of Coca-Cola a day, you can try to reduce it and do a half a can a day and start there and then go to a quarter can a day if you're like, I really, really need that hit. 
um, and just work your way down until you're having less. Maybe you eventually get to none. Maybe you eventually get to choosing water instead of Coca-Cola. And maybe you don't, maybe you're having a quarter cup of Coca-Cola every single day, but you are so much better off with that quarter cup than a full can. Another thing that helps people sometimes is to dilute it. So adding a little bit of your soda to water or a little bit of your water to the soda and diluting it so that over time you kind of lose your taste for it. There are different ways to go about working on these habits, but those are really, really going to be essential because for most people, we're getting more added sugar in a day from a can of soda or a Snapple than we're supposed to be getting in, in, in an entire day. And just in case this is helpful for people, it's worth knowing The American Heart Association recommends that adult women have no more than 25 grams of added sugar per day. I think Coca-Cola has something like 40 grams of added sugar in it. Some of those flavored coffees you could get from Starbucks can have 50s and 60 grams of sugar in them. So those are places where you're really overloading your body with sugar in one quick drink. It's liquid, so it breaks down super quickly. And I would say, listen, if it's the thing that just lights you up, you're like, I love Coca-Cola. I love a Frappuccino. Okay. Treat yourself once in a while. But if it's a daily thing, it can really be affecting your body in all these ways that we spoke about in this episode. Number four is focus on sleep. It is very, very difficult to reap the benefits of balanced blood sugar if you're not sleeping. And poor sleep actually makes it harder to balance your blood sugar for a few reasons. So number one, When you have bad quality sleep, it actually makes your blood sugar spike more. Your body's just more sensitive to sugar um, on the days where you haven't had a good night's sleep beforehand. And we've seen this in the research. So you could have the same exact meal on Tuesday and on Wednesday, but if you slept well Monday night and you slept poorly Tuesday night, you could have a higher spike from that meal on the Wednesday. So that makes sense how I explained the days, right? You have a good night's sleep and then you eat a meal, you could have stable blood sugar, or even if you have some kind of a spike, it might be within a normal range. And on a night of poor sleep or following the night of poor sleep, you can have worse blood sugar from the same exact meal. So it's not only about the sugar count and the carb count and how much you're exercising. Sleep plays an essential role. We also know that when you have poor quality sleep or not enough sleep, your cravings tend to go up. And part of that is because you're just craving energy. You need a hit. You need a quick pick-me-up. And we look for that in the form of sugar and refined carbohydrates typically, right? Think about, I know I notice this all the time ever since I learned about it. On the nights where I'm maybe getting six, six and a half hours instead of eight hours, I find myself wanting something sweet for breakfast instead of reaching for a more savory breakfast like eggs and sauteed veggies. That leads me to my next tip, number five, start with breakfast. I always tell people, start with breakfast if you're looking to make one small change. And the reason for that is because the way that you start your day actually impacts the roller coaster throughout the rest of the day. So if you were to say, I want to pick one meal to make blood sugar friendly, I'm going to pick dinner. It's actually going to be less effective than if you were to pick breakfast because the way that you start off, let's say you started off with a less blood sugar friendly meal for breakfast and you got super blood sugar friendly for dinner, you've already started the roller coaster if you started your breakfast with a frappuccino for breakfast, right? If you started off with the cornflakes and milk, as we know, spike many of our blood sugars up to pre-diabetic levels. If you start off with a blood sugar spike and a crash, 
You've started your day on the roller coaster. It affects your cravings. It affects your energy. It affects your insulin. You've already got a lot more insulin pumped out into your body than if you were to start with a blood sugar-friendly breakfast. So this is where I really recommend starting because you'll actually have bigger wins and a bigger effect on your body if you start with breakfast. I have a ton of ideas on my website, but some of the things that are my go-tos are smoothies. They have to be blood sugar friendly smoothies. They're not just like tons and tons of fruit blended together without protein or fat. Um, You could do like a really good quality, high protein yogurt with things like chia seeds or flax seeds, getting some fiber into that, some fresh fruit to top it. One of my favorite things for breakfast are eggs. Eggs are a really high source of protein and fat. I like to do veggie omelets where I just get the veggies in and it all tastes really good. And another one that's great for breakfast are my lentil patties. I have this recipe on my website. They are savory. They're delicious. You can make them in advance and freeze them and then just pop them out of the freezer. Either put them in the oven if you have a little more time or the microwave. You have a really nourishing blood sugar-friendly breakfast and you feel fuller from these types of foods than if you were to grab the cereal or the bagel or a granola bar or something like that. So starting with breakfast is a really easy way to get a win in early in the day. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I feel like I only scratched the surface here when it comes to talking about all the different ways that blood sugar affects our bodies and different ways that you could take care of it. But I feel like you do have a lot to start with here. So I would love to hear from you. If you listen to this episode and you learn something new, let me know. Comment on my latest Instagram post. If you've put any of these tips into practice, whether it's the exercise, the sleep, the blood sugar-friendly breakfast. Also, I would love to know. Take a picture of your breakfast on Instagram and tag me or send me a message and tell me how you felt that day when you were taking care of your blood sugar. I really love, love, love hearing about the big wins, but I also love hearing about the small wins. So sometimes people will tell me, I don't even know if I should message you. I feel like this is so silly, but I've just noticed that I feel so much more awake or I don't even crave coffee anymore because I have more energy since I started balancing my blood sugar. Sometimes I love hearing those little things even more than the, you know, I got pregnant after years of trying, not not more. That's not the right word, but I love hearing the little ways that it enhances people's lives as well as the big ways, because the little moments are where we really live our day to day. And you deserve to feel good in the big moments in the little moments and balancing your blood sugar is really a great way to do that. So keep me updated. I would love to hear from you. If you like this episode, let me know, share it with a friend, tag me on Instagram. If you post it to your feed and I can't wait to be back with you next week for another great episode. So take care, everybody. Feel good. And I wish you all health and happiness. Thank you so much for listening to the About Health and Hormones podcast. If you loved today's episode, I would love to know. Please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so I can make this podcast even better for you all. I would love to connect with you. Follow me on Instagram at Lauren Allen Nutrition or head to my website, www.laurenallennutrition.com to learn about my coaching programs and stay up to date on all of my latest workshops and courses. I am so glad you are here today and I wish you all health and happiness.